Welcome to the 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Mason feels unlucky with Llama. I dabble in painting with Canvas. Meeple Lady gets abstract with Mandala. And Luke wraps up his series on the Mask Trilogy. But first, John takes us to the forest with Brew. In Brew from designer Stevo Torres and publisher Pandasaurus Games, up to four players take on the roles of forest mystics as they attempt to save woodland creatures by harnessing the power of the elements and brewing up potions. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Okay, so Brew sounds like a fun game filled with cute woodland creatures, magic-laden potions, and some nice nods to ecological and wildlife preservation, and it is, but it also can be a pretty mean game. Brew takes place over the course of four rounds in which players take turns placing one of their six die on the village board or the offer of forest cards. Each round starts off with players rolling their six die, which consists of four forage dice and two elemental dice. Then, in turn order, players place a die on a forest spot or a village spot. Players can also brew and or consume one potion during their turn. The round ends when every player is out of dice. Forest spaces grant you resources or let you train any of the four face-up Pokemon-esque forest creatures that grant you bonuses. All of the spaces on the forest cards require specific forage results, so to use them you have to have rolled the corresponding symbol on your forage dice. Placing one of your forage dice on a forest space not only lets you gain the associated resources, but also, and more importantly, gets you closer to controlling that particular forest card. Brew, at its heart, is about area control. Whoever has the most of their own player-colored forage dice on a forest card claims it at the end of the round. But it's not as easy as it sounds. Not only do you have to contend with other players interloping dice as you attempt to win a forest card and the precious points they confer, you also have to deal with neutral elemental dice. In addition to four foraging dice in their own player color, each player also gets two neutral white elemental dice that can be placed on any empty forest spot. You then gain the resource granted from that spot, but that neutral die doesn't count towards your presence on that forest card. In fact, if you're planning on taking that card as your own at the end of the round, you'll have to have more of your dice on that card than other players, and more than the neutral elemental dice. This can lead to very strategic, very stressful turns in which you're trying to leverage your dice results to claim forest cards while blocking other players from their own attempts at control. Complicating things is the fact that the symbols on the elemental dice let you do really useful things. Water symbols let you claim two additional resources of the same kind when you place it on a forest space that grants resources. An elemental die with a wind icon can be exchanged with one of your already placed personal forage dice from a forest card, returning it to your pool. And as you can imagine, this can be super useful when you've been outnumbered on a card and are looking to move one of your own forged die to a different card. You can even use it to stall when you need a little bit more time to figure out where the other players will allocate their dice. A neutral elemental die with a fire symbol on it can be placed on top of another player's already placed forage die on a forest card. Super useful when you want to lessen a player's presence on a card. Yeah, it can get a bit mean, but it never really feels too mean. There are plenty of ways to return the favor when it comes to other players messing with your well-laid plans. And like I said before, those forest cards are essential for scoring. Not only do they confer points, they also allow you to earn more points from your released creatures. Each creature card has an icon depicting one of the game's four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Those same icons are on the forest cards everyone is trying to win, and at the end of the game, a creature that gets matched up with the forest card of the same season icon gets flipped over to its higher scoring flip side. 
The resources collected from the four spaces are used to brew potions from the four card offer on the table. During their turn, players can exchange resources for a potion card, adding it to their hand, silently vowing to use it against you at a later turn as revenge for perceived attacks, even though you only placed that die there because you wanted the resources and totally not because you were planning to claim the card at the end of the round. Uh, sorry for the digression. Potions can be really useful and often let you swap or remove dice on the forest cards. Well-timed use of these potions can have devastating effects. Some potions and even one spot on the village board let you scorch empty action spots, making them unusable. At the end of the game, you count up the amount of points you've earned from forest cards, potions, release, and unreleased creatures, and leftover resources, and whoever has the most points wins. And brew designer Steve Torres has created a game that generates some very tense and heated turns. The interaction between elemental dice powers and potions is super interesting and can lead to some very memorable moments. It's a game I would definitely recommend for those who don't mind games in which you're constantly interfering with each other and messing up each other's plans. It's a real friendship tester of a game with some fun art from Jake Morrison and Andrew Thompson that reminds me of Pokemon meets Studio Ghibli. The art is great, it definitely makes the game a little bit more approachable, especially since it can get a little mean at times. Brew is definitely worth checking out, so check it out sometime. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds, B-O-O-K-O-F-N-E-R-D-S. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Unlucky Sevens. Okay, well, it's sort of Kinesia's Llama, but you can hear about that anywhere. Today, I want to talk about our house variant of Llama, Unlucky Sevens. It's not going to cost you anything to play except the money that you are going to lose to your friends and family. Lose my hard-earned cash, I hear you saying, and yes, as Meg's grandmother says, you play differently when it's real money. Dr. Reiner Kinesia's Llama is a 2019 card game from Amigo that's a little bit like Uno, but with some scoring rules. You're trying to empty your hand of cards. If you do, you win the hand. If you don't, you have to take negative points with what's left. You must draw, discard, or fold on your turn. You can discard with a card of the same number or one higher. When taking negative points, you only count each copy of a card once. So if you have four fives, you only take five points. But if you have a two, a three, and two sixes, you take 11 points. We've been having sort of a family poker night recently with some fun games. 727, AC Ducey, Spit in the Ocean, etc. And it got me thinking about other light card games that are easy to teach quickly, don't have a large hand of cards, and most importantly can be played for money. In thinking about playing Llama for money, I needed to get past a key point, the black chips. See, in Llama, you can trade your white chips in for a black 10-point chip. When you go out in Llama, let's get rid of all your cards, you can give one of your chips back, even a black one. So there's a certain amount of strategy in chip management. And I racked my brains trying to get this to map on top of playing cards for pennies, and I just couldn't make it work. But eventually, I came to realize that it didn't matter because Unlucky Sevens is a fundamentally different game. It has a different central motivation, obviously, winning money. Now, you can make yourself a set of Unlucky Sevens with playing cards and some coins. You'll need Ace through Seven in two decks. It doesn't matter if they have different backs as long as you can shuffle them together. And this is a perfect usage for one of those gift sets of bridge cards you have sitting in a drawer. Now, if you must, of course, go out and buy just a bicycle double deck at the drugstore, that'll do just fine. When you've combined them, you'll have a deck of 64 cards. That's eight copies of eight numbers. The suits matter not in U7. If you want, and you have a copy of Llama, of course you're welcome to use that, uh, and you can also make it out of a skip bow deck, which has plenty of cards. 
You deal and play U7, just like Llama, but at the end of the round, you'll pay a penny a point into the pot. If you're able to go out on your turn, you will win the pot, and the round is over. If you choose to fold, you keep your cards face down so the pot is secret until the end of the round. Each card you get stuck with costs its face value in pennies, except for sevens, which cost a dime, which is why they're unlucky. Play in unlucky sevens is more risk-averse than Llama. You're more likely to keep drawing and playing in U7 because unlike Llama, where you can exchange points in later rounds, you're really just playing hand-to-hand. Now, I get this may be a turnoff for fans of Kinesia's point-swapping mechanism, but, like I said, it's a different game. You're not going to win any money playing Llama. The pot can actually get pretty big in U7. Someone really only goes out every other hand or so. And there's a real feeling of chasing your money as you're deciding whether to draw or fold if you can't play. Ideally, you'd probably figure out a way to set yourself up with a run that you can play after everyone else has folded, but you're just as likely to get stuck with a big straight hand of cards that all have to be paid off if somebody else goes out. We played a full night of this, and we all had, I think, a pretty good time. There's a lot of throwing cards down on the table when someone else was able to go out before you, fair amount of swearing by me, anyway. Now, you're not going to win or lose a bundle here, maybe 50 cents up or down either way, depending on how long you play, but... I guess if you wanted to just get crazy with it, you could, like, play for real money? I don't know, dollars? That seems unsound, but I'm also not a high-stakes gambler. Buying a copy of Llama is a good idea, but I'd probably avoid the Llama Party version, as it's a little bit more money, and it just comes with one extra 20-point wild card and some extra 20-point chips, which I think is not a great variant, honestly. It's a little chaotic for my taste. If you want to throw some wilds into U7, I guess you're welcome to, but I definitely wouldn't use more than one for every two or three players. If you want to play with more than six, you'll add a third deck of Ace through Seven, which should take you up to eight players. For 12 players, which could be just total chaos, I haven't tried it, you would use the four full Ace through Seven decks. Multiple decks of Skip Bow will work just fine as well, as each set has eight of each number. So, who should play Unlucky Sevens? People who really like Llama. People who love the idea of Kinesia auction games and want to flip them on their heads. People who are looking for new light gambling games. People who have never tried a gambling game on a game night but would like to take some money off of their friends. And people who like losing money and living dangerously. I give Unlucky Sevens 15 out of 15 cents that my grandma took from me laughing gleefully. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. Keep wearing a mask, keep keeping your distance, and if you're not vaccinated yet, get vaccinated as soon as you can. Layering clear plastic cards is a mechanism that I was surprised to discover hasn't been used that often. There's Gloom, of course, from all the way back in 2005. There are the card crafting games, notably Mystic Veil, and a few others here and there. And now there's Canvas. Designed by Jeff Chin and Andrew Nerger and published in 2021 by Road to Infamy Games, Canvas is a clever, puzzly game in which you draft clear plastic cards and layer them to make artwork. Each card has an artistic element on it, maybe a lamppost on one side or a person looking off into the distance. Each player has three abstract backgrounds inside plastic sleeves, and your goal is to add three clear cards to each background to create three paintings. The art in a game about art needs to be great, and the art in Canvas is great. Besides just being attractive, I'm really impressed that the art is spare enough and positioned just right so that when you stack three cards on a background, you can see the art from all three, and it never looks cluttered. I've never seen the art from two cards end up right on top of each other so you can't see the lower one. 
They fit together so well that sometimes it's hard to believe it was the result of nearly random stacking. It's an achievement by artist Luan Huin. According to BGG, this is his only board game, and I sure hope he does more. Besides having terrific art, each card also has a series of colors, swatches, and symbols at the bottom, which are used to score your painting. Canvas comes with a collection of scoring cards, which you use to determine the scoring criteria, which arrangement of symbols and or colors will score. You can draw randomly, or the rulebook offers nine suggested combinations for varying difficulty levels. What's interesting about the scoring is that just like with Gloom, stacking cards sometimes add symbols and sometimes covers them up. Unlike Gloom, in Canvas you can stack the cards in any order you like, so you have more control over which symbols are revealed and which are concealed. Each painting gets exactly three cards, and you're trying to arrange them to meet the four scoring criteria, and you have a hand limit of five cards with no way to discard, so you can't just keep drawing forever until you get the perfect combination. It's a really fun little puzzle, especially if the card draft doesn't go your way and you get stuck with a card or two you don't really like and you're trying to make them work as well as possible. I love games that force you to make that kind of difficult choice, to do the best you can with what you have because you can't get what you really want. Between card drafting and card layering, Canvas provides a lot of interesting choices in such a quick game. In fact, my only real criticism of Canvas is that it may be a bit prone to AP, especially if you end up with all four scoring cards being difficult or tricky ones. It can be a lot to keep track of. But one of the things I love best about Canvas is that you control the difficulty level. You can make it a bit of a brain burner or a light easy game. If you're not in the mood for strategy at all, you could choose one of the easiest sets of scorecards and draft mainly based on which cards will stack to make the nicest painting. Even in games where we are focusing on strategy, at the end we always lay out all our completed paintings and decide which one works best as an artwork. Canvas has solo rules, which are pretty good. There are two solo options, the main difference being do you have to discard available cards before you can draft them or not. In both solo styles, you play against yourself and try to score above certain levels. I wouldn't get Canvas as a solo game alone, but it's fun to play while I unwind and watch a movie, not something I need to give my undivided attention. Which is great, I love relaxing with solo games. Another thing I like about Canvas is the component quality. It comes in a really nice box, sturdy and compact, no wasted space. There's a cloth playmat that rolls up and fits inside the box. The cards are beautiful, with nice bright printing, and they come with a protective film that you can remove, but I left it on. Also, the cards come in this nice little box that's open on one end. You store the deck inside the box during games so you don't know what card will be available next. I love that attention to detail. I have the Kickstarter edition, which came with wooden tokens that are nice, but the retail edition includes everything needed for gameplay. In fact, the only component I don't really care for was the Kickstarter bonus. These little wooden easels to put your completed paintings on. It's a great idea, but they're fiddly, tend to fall over, and don't fit in the box. You aren't missing anything if you get the retail edition without the easels. Speaking of retail, Canvas is available from the Road to Infamy website, but they're selling it through Amazon, so if you search for it on Amazon, that's the same thing. You can also find copies here and there at smaller game retailers, and a reprint is expected in February 2022. At the same time, they'll be releasing an expansion, which I did not back when it was on Kickstarter earlier this year, and I kind of regret that now. And that's Canvas, a lovely, puzzly game about paintings. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other interesting games that involve stacking clear cards. Then I really want to hear from you. Thank you.
According to the rulebook, the mandala is a symbol of an ancient and sacred ritual. Colored sand is laid to create a symbolic map of the world before the pattern is ceremonially destroyed and the sand cast into the river, an ever-repeating cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Sounds so tranquil and meditative, right? When my husband and I play mandala the board game, it's anything but. It's quite cutthroat and tense, and this is quickly becoming one of my favorite 2P games. Mandala, designed by Trevor Benjamin and Brett J. Gilbert, with artwork by Clemens Franz, which surprisingly Mandala is completely devoid of sheep, is a 2P game published by Lookout Games, with gameplay in about 20 minutes. At its core, it's an abstract, minimalist card game that comes with a lovely linen board where you play cards into. So why do I love this game so much? You're basically in charge of how you want to score. And yes, I know that sounds like, well, of course that's how you play board games, but it's so much more. It's up to you how much value you want to place on specific cards for the purposes of scoring at the end. And dude, that's a lot of pressure for such a quick game. In addition to the cloth board, the game comes with 110 sand cards made up of 18 cards of six colors, black, green, purple, yellow, orange, and red. The cloth board has two mandalas printed on it, with a space cutting the mandalas in half between the two players. This middle part is called the mountain. The sides where the mandala halves sit are called the field. You and your opponent have two fields each on your side of the board, and at the very edge closest to each player, there are six squares in a row, each with a value one to six, and this is called the river. Lastly, there's a square off to the side, which represents each player's cup. At the start of the game, two cards are seated face up into the mountain for each mandala, and two cards are placed face down into each player's cup. You can look at the cards in your cup at any time, but they remain hidden from the other player. Each player then starts with a hand of six cards, and then you can leave the deck off to the side of the board. On your turn, you can do one of three actions. You can play exactly one card into either mountain, then draw up to three cards to a maximum hard limit of eight cards in your hand. The second action you can do is play any number of cards of one color into exactly one of your fields. You do not get to draw any more cards after this action. The last action is to place any number of cards of one color into the discard pile and draw an equal number of cards from the deck to go into your hand. Three simple actions, right? But there's this thing called the rule of color. Each of the six sand colors may only appear in exactly one of the three areas within an individual mandala. So if your opponent already has purple cards in their field, you cannot drop purple cards into your field or throw any into the mountain. However, you can always add cards to an existing pile in the mountain or in your field. Why do you want to add more cards of a color that's already represented in your field? Because having more cards in your field will give you the priority to choose cards when scoring. When all six colors are represented in one mandala, it's time for it to be destroyed and you can score some points. The person with the most cards in their field will have the first option to collect a group of cards in the mountain of the same color. And this goes back and forth until there are no more cards in the mountain. If you claim cards of a new color that's not present in your river, you place one card face up into your leftmost box on your river and then place the remaining cards, if any, face down into your cup. This means that those cards of the same color in your cup will be worth that many victory points each based on the box that you place the initial card face up in the river. So anywhere from one to six points. If you claim cards of a color that's already present in your river, just place those new cards face down into your cup. Pro tip, you probably want to place the cards that were seated to you at the beginning of the game on the higher value river space since you already know for sure that you'll be scoring them at the end. The cards in both fields are then discarded for the mantala that just scored. 
The game ends immediately when one player has all six colors represented in the river. If a mandala is scored and neither player has all six colors in the river, place two cards face up from the draw deck into the newly emptied mandala and continue gameplay. At the end of the game, players then take the cards from their cup and calculate the point value of each card based on the card's placement on the river. So from the get-go, this game is super tense. There's so much agony when being forced to trigger or delay a mandala cleanup. You may want to pile on cards that are of high value to you, but you don't want your opponent to collect that stash, all while managing the cards in your hand to ensure that you'll have the majority so you can get first pick when scoring. Or maybe you want to trigger scoring so that your opponent won't be able to collect any cards in their cup. This can happen if they have no cards in their field. They still claim a stash of cards, but instead of putting it into their cup, they discard them. However, I wish the iconography was a little clearer on the player aids. It may be possibly printed out on the cloth board. But overall, I enjoy the aesthetic of the game. Colorful, pretty cards and the linen board all fit into a small square box, like the other 2P games. And like a repeating cycle of life, death, and rebirth, if you lose your first game, Mandala is short enough that you can immediately play it again and again until you figure out how to destroy the Mandala so that it best benefits you. And that's Mandala! This is Meeple Lady for the Fi-Buy. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! I've talked at length on the Five by about iterative designs, the good, the bad, the reasons why the industry focuses on them. I've seen what I consider a glut of iterations in the last 10 years or so, fueled not only by the previous decade's explosion in the board game industry, but by the deluge that that explosion caused. The desperate need for publishers to constantly release new games whether audiences have really grokked the previous one or not. Sometimes, though, I'm reminded of iterations on a design that aren't purely cynical, that represent designers wishing to provide players with options surrounding a singular theme that, while similar, offer unique experiences and insights into the designer's tinkering process. No series greater exemplifies this idea than Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer's Mask Trilogy. I'm going to depart from the typical 5 by formula of individual game reviews today and take a few minutes to compare and contrast the three Mask Trilogy games. If you'd like deeper dives into each individual game, check out my full reviews in episodes 109, 110, and 112 of the 5 by For now, though, let's dive into the trilogy as a whole. The Mask Trilogy is the unofficial name for a series of games originally published between 1999 and 2002, Tikal, Java, and Mexica, and is so named because the original boxes all featured an ancient mask on the cover. All three games were originally intended to be set in different parts of Mesoamerica, but original publisher Ravensburger inexplicably chose to shift the theme of the second game to the Indonesian island of Java. As these are all relatively abstract Euro games, it's not a massive deal, but it does seem like a nonsensical change. This decision was rectified with the newest printings of the games, but I'll talk about that a little bit more later. All three games are based around action point allocation systems, where players are given a fixed number of action points at the beginning of each turn, which they spend on an array of different actions. Beyond the action point system, each game can effectively be described as area control with tile-laying elements. And this is where the trilogy gets genuinely interesting to me, not only as a set of games to enjoy, but a direct insight into the design and development process. Playing all three games in original publication order, you can see how the system evolved and where each game influenced the next. 
Tikal, for example, involves the mandatory placement of a random landscape tile representing the exploration and excavation of the jungle. Some tiles uncover temples which players can further excavate, building them upward and adding to their value for area control. Java introduced verticality and ever-shifting landscape to this system with multi-hex tiles that could be stacked to form terraces. The area control and building of temples was similar, although thematically you're building them in Java versus excavating them in Tikal, but control of an area or a temple now involved changing the landscape to encompass discrete areas and took the vertical position of pieces into account. While Mexico stepped away from the vertical expansion, it focused on Cuzco's shifting landscape, with players carving up the island with canals to make discrete districts. Those districts would then be fought over by building temples, but instead of individual temples changing in height, each player has a fixed set of different sized temples they use to exert control over districts. What's most fascinating about the trilogy to me, and what makes them stand out among other iterative designs, is how Kiesling and Cromer managed to use the same basic building blocks to create three games that are undeniably related, yet distinct enough to stand side by side without feeling repetitive. While not entirely unique within the hobby, in my opinion the Mask Trilogy stands as the most successful implementation of this sort of design ethos. Other designers have attempted this in the past, Uwe Rosenberg chief among them, with mostly mixed results. Cottage Garden, Indian Summer, and Spring Meadow stand in stark opposition to the Mask Trilogy as a set of games that evoke the same design mentality, but don't differentiate themselves enough to warrant the existence of all three. In truth, I think the only other iterative designs that may work as a group on the same level as the Mask Trilogy are the Azul games, designed by, guess who, Michael Kiesling. Starting in 2015, French publisher Supermeeple revamped all three games, giving them a more vibrant color palette, more interesting art, and adding chunky, heavy resin temple pieces and shaped meeples to all three that are a fitting upgrade to these fantastic designs. In addition, they rethemed Java back to its original intent, renaming it Cuzco and dropping it back into Mesoamerica where it belongs. With these versions, the quote-unquote Mask Trilogy moniker becomes tradition rather than representation, since the new boxes no longer depict masks. But that's okay, because the new versions are such fantastic realizations of these designs that I absolutely cannot recommend getting the old versions, even if they're cheap. Spring for the new ones. You won't be disappointed. While I think the games are unique enough that one could own all three, I certainly do, some may be turned off by the similarities, or only interested in one particular version. If you love the feeling of exploration and discovery alongside jockeying for control, T-Call's your bag. If you want something more puzzly and brain-burning with literal layers of depth to the control aspect, go with Cuzco. If you want a tighter, more tactical experience that eschews some complexity in favor of pacing, the clear choice is Mexica. Overall, though, all three games are fantastic designs that stand the test of time and hold up surprisingly well against the rest of the industry. Nothing about them feels archaic or dated. I picked up Mexica back in 2016 without knowing it was a reprint of an older game, and I never would have guessed. The Mask Trilogy are, genuinely, some of the best area control games ever made. If you like what you've heard about the mechanisms I've described over the course of these reviews, they deserve a place in your collection. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 by Games. From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. Thank you.